Hi, welcome to season three of the ACE Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read lengthy journal articles or reports. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACEDIT is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. We can save lives if we get people medication while they are incarcerated. And we can save exponentially more lives if those same people leave incarceration and go to a community-based treatment provider where they continue to get their medication and engage in other treatment processes like counseling. But at each step along the process, we lose people. Many people leave incarceration and never make it to their intake appointment in the community. Of those who make it to the intake appointment, even fewer come back for a second visit. And that number shrinks the further out in time one goes. Each of these steps are important targets for interventions. What processes will help get more people to their first appointment after they are released? What will help get more people to come to the next appointment and the next one after that? Most ideas center around some sort of case management or patient navigation. The idea is that if someone can help smooth the way, iron out the logistical hurdles that might prevent a person from continuing treatment, maybe that will do the trick. Other ideas include some sort of motivational component. One question that might come to mind is, well, what's already been tried and how well did those efforts work? These are the two questions that the team led by Gorella, set out to answer in their scoping review of the published literature on studies that evaluated interventions to link individuals to substance use disorder services at the point of community reentry from jail. A scoping review doesn't try to use fancy math to estimate effect sizes over many studies. A scoping review provides an overview or map of the evidence. The authors describe in words the range of studies, and the nature of their findings. They try to identify common themes, areas of concurrence, and research gaps. This approach is appropriate when the studies you're looking at include studies with diverse goals, diverse target populations, intervention components, and outcomes reported. So, the how part. Believe it or not, there are established methods for conducting and reporting systematic and scoping reviews. It's written down in something called the Preferred Reporting Items for Systematic Reviews and Meta-Analysis, or PRISMA Guidelines, and the PRISMA Extension for Scoping Reviews. Because, of course, scientists need a standard method for collecting and reading studies. So, how does one go about finding the studies? First, you decide where you will search, and then what you will search. These authors establish search criteria— and a date range, and then they search two large databases called PubMed and PsycInfo. Then they created lots of search terms designed to give them the results that fit their search criteria. Once they had a large list of studies, two reviewers systematically combed through them using a four-step review process. By the end, the team had 14 studies to summarize. They summarized the characteristics of the intervention, What exactly did the intervention include? 
who delivered the intervention, and what was the frequency and duration of contacts with patients. They also summarized study characteristics, like whether it used a quasi-experimental or random controlled trial design, the sample size and the characteristics, the study location and outcomes measures, and follow-up duration. Outcome measures included linkage to either substance use treatment or medications for substance use disorder, retention, or adherence, criminal behavior or criminal justice system involvement, and substance use outcomes. To see a full display of the characteristics of the 14 studies, check the handout that goes along with this podcast. All of the studies initiated contact with participants in jail prior to release. The studies used a mix of intervention components, including case management, peer or patient navigation, medication management, or facilitated referral, and motivation-based interventions. Some used only one of those interventions, while others used a combination. If you're interested in addressing opioid use disorders in justice-involved populations, and since you're listening to this podcast, I will assume that you are, you have likely or will likely hear these terms. So let's take a minute to describe exactly what they mean. Case management's core components include referral and service coordination and, to varying degrees, assessment, planning, linkage, monitoring, and advocacy. Patient navigation interventions, which you may see shortened to PN, also focus on helping patients to engage in services. Navigators might assist patients with scheduling medical appointments, accompanying patients to medical appointments and facilitating communication with clinicians, addressing logistical problems such as childcare and transportation, and providing emotional support. But the individual programs can and do vary. For example, patient navigators might use a strengths-based case management approach with motivational techniques. In some studies, they met with individuals while in jail, conducted an intensive assessment, psychoeducation, and discharge case management plan. In others, they used a motivational interviewing harm reduction approach to link individuals to a wide range of other services at discharge and accompanied studied participants to medical visits. In yet another study, peer navigators provided a 12-session structured intervention for participants that was initiated in jail prior to discharge. The focus was on fostering social support and self-efficacy, serving as role models, and helping individuals engage with needed services. In contrast to patient navigators, who are not necessarily from the targeted population, Peer navigators leverage their shared lived experience with participants to provide recovery support and serve as role models. Nearly all studies combine treatment linkage with an array of other intervention components. These typically included referrals to a wide range of services from health and mental health services to life skills, housing, education, and vocational assistance, or even social services. Several help participants to obtain identification cards or other documents needed to enter treatment or to obtain public assistance or health insurance. Some included specific therapeutic approaches, such as motivational interviewing or enhancement or even crisis intervention. Half of the studies included HIV education or risk reduction as part of the intervention model. Only three studies included overdose prevention or education in the intervention and usual care. In most studies, the reentry process was guided by individualized treatment plans or discharge post-release transition plans from jail to the community. So, who conducts these interventions? Well, 
there was considerable variation among the studies when it came to who provided various intervention components and their level of training and expertise. Some included medical staff combined with patient navigators, one combined patient navigators and case managers, and one used nonspecific project staff. Staff delivering interventions focused on linkage to SUD or HIV treatment included drug treatment counselors and case managers, peers or faith-based mentors from the same neighborhoods as study participants, paraprofessional linkage managers, health educators or clinicians to provide brief motivational interventions, and a team of case managers, behavioral therapists, and family counselors. So how did the interventions do? The studies looked at different outcomes, including how well the programs linked people to treatment, how well they kept people engaged in treatment, and retained in treatment. Some studies also looked at criminal legal outcomes. Did the program participants get reincarcerated? And they looked at substance use outcomes. Did problematic substance use decline? Well, to put it simply, it was a very mixed bag. Ten studies examined outcomes related to treatment linkage, engagement, retention, or adherence. Overall, this review found evidence to support the effectiveness of a diverse range of interventions in initial engagement in or linkage to services, and yet found limited support for their impact on longer-term treatment retention or medication adherence. In other words, there was success in getting people into the community-based treatment provider following their release from jail. Those programs that used assertive referral and linkage navigation Intensive case management interventions and recovery management checkups work best, whereas interventions using brief motivational interventions prior to and after release did not have significant effects on treatment entry. Several programs succeeded in getting people to community-based MOUD providers following in-jail initiation of treatment using case management and or patient navigation. However, retention in MOUD treatment fell sharply after 90 days. And differences in treatment participation between groups were limited beyond that time. Of the 10 studies that examined substance use outcomes, three found positive intervention effects at some point post-release. Seven found no significant intervention effects, although in some cases effects varied by type of substance. Findings regarding pre-release initiation of treatment with MOUD on post-release substance use were mixed. If people received an extended-release naltrexone shot prior to release, they had better opioid use outcomes eight weeks later, but that's a rather short time period. Similarly, those who received pre-release initiation of methadone maintenance treatment and referral to community providers had lower rates of heroin relapse at six months. In contrast, interim methadone prior to release or in pre-release initiation of extended-release naltrexone coupled with patient navigation showed no beneficial impact on opioid or other substance use outcomes over 12 to 24 months. Overall, 11 of the 14 studies examined criminal legal outcomes. Again, findings were mixed, with five studies showing beneficial effects associated with the re-entry intervention, six showing no significant effects. And here, study design seemed to matter. 
Quasi-experimental studies that matched experimental participants with comparable controls found superior outcomes on recidivism for the intervention groups using administrative records on arrest and probation violations. However, in RCTs that evaluated criminal legal outcomes, no demonstrated intervention effect occurred across a range of measures, apart from one that was limited to decrease in serious arrest among women who received transitional planning and intensive case management. Two studies using navigation-based interventions included qualitative interviews that provided more in-depth descriptions of the experiences of participants and staff conducting the interventions in these studies. These interviews showed that participants valued the patient navigator's non-judgmental caring and persistence, advocacy, help in brokering resources and managing interactions with the criminal legal system, and genuine support. Yet several also described the tension between attempts to motivate and push them and alternatively to foster their self-determination. Qualitative interviews also illustrated the importance of building connection and trust between the navigators and participants based on their shared experience related to HIV, incarceration, or drug use. In addition, to helping address clients' basic needs such as food and clothing, patient navigators served as role models for recovery and social functioning and helped to resolve problems that arise in attempts to access services or interact with the legal system. One big takeaway from this research synthesis is that treatment interventions likely need to be more intensive with longer durations. I hope this review has you thinking of ways to improve these needed interventions. Now, if you're not interested in the recommendations for future research, you can go ahead and end this podcast. If you are interested, though, in expanding your knowledge in this area, keep listening. If you are interested in research, this study provides a lot of recommendations of where to go from here. First, consider evaluating comparative treatment outcomes for different forms of medication for opioid use disorder. Prior research shows more favorable post-release treatment engagement for individuals treated with buprenorphine versus methadone. And consider comparing different formulations for buprenorphine, such as extended release versus daily sublingual. Second, consider examining linkage interventions that are coupled with expanded components or longer duration and use theory and prior research to build the intervention components rather than throwing in any and everything, as this makes it hard to assess which components are essential and which are extraneous. And when you do your study, think about how to systematically examine core components to understand the relationship of intervention components to specific outcomes. You might also consider a cost-effectiveness study to evaluate dimensions of programs such as the degree to which they are passive versus assertive, limited versus comprehensive, and shorter versus longer duration. Also, consider studying varied populations. As noted, most of the included studies had samples that were majority male. Consider studying women or rural communities, for example, or consider studying implementation. The authors noted several implementation frameworks that have been successfully applied to developing cross-system interventions that depend upon successful integration across corrections and community-based treatment which need to be further examined in future research. And finally, no matter what you study, be sure to include qualitative data components, particularly on how participants experienced the reentry interventions or the challenges they faced in the reentry process, as well as the perspectives of intervention staff. 
Such information is a valuable companion to interpreting intervention outcomes and developing strategies to improve implementation. Good luck to all of you out there shining your investigative lights on these important humanitarian efforts. We've got to do better. And with your help, we can. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACEDIT is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. You can find ACEDIT on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, really anywhere that you'd normally find podcasts. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACEDIT.